Amen. What's going on, Grace Hill? You guys doing all right? Like how I just snuck out the back there? Uh, it's great to see you all, and I'm excited to be preaching uh, the Word of God this morning. Alan's actually leading worship in kids, so you can pray for him. He's doing that thing. Uh, but we're excited to continue in our series titled Joy Over One. Uh, this is week three, and this whole series, we've basically been focusing on how we as the church are called and commissioned uh, to pursue people with the gospel message of Jesus Christ, with the good news. And so our collective challenge throughout the series has been to basically pray through and to find one person that you can pursue in some capacity. So that might be sharing the gospel with them. It might be inviting them to church. Uh, it might even be just forming a relationship with them. Uh, but whatever that looks like specifically for you, uh, we want to hold each other accountable uh, to and encourage one another in this endeavor uh, because it is so near to God's heart that we'd be pursuing people as God has uh, pursued us first. So excited about that. So quick recap, the first week of the series, uh, Alan basically talked about um, assessing our hearts as we begin to go into this process of pursuing the one and so what that might look like. And then uh, last week we talked about how our joy in Jesus uh, should be the primary uh, motivator in us sharing our faith. And so we basically, this is something that we do as we realize more and more just the treasure uh, that we have in knowing God in a relationship with him. And so as we realize that, we, we want to share that treasure with others, right? And so that's kind of what we talked about. And so this week, for our third week uh, in our series, we want to get really practical. Uh, and we want to dive deeper into what it looks like to actually pursue the one and how it is uh, that we do that. And so uh, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at a few different texts here today in the New Testament. So we're going to be looking at the life of Christ uh, and some interactions that he has. We're going to be looking at Paul and uh, some interactions that he has. And uh, basically, we'll, we'll, we'll be in quite a few texts uh, this morning, so, so hang with me. Um, but for, for our first text, we're actually going to be in Philippians 2. And again, as we jump around, I'd encourage you guys just to take notes, to write things down, uh, to take some notes, and to even go back to these texts later on and just to dig into them a little bit deeper. So for starters... Uh, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to pick it up for us in verse 3. And we've, I feel like we've actually been in this passage quite a bit lately, so what's one more time here in Philippians 2? So we're going to start it in verse 3, and it says this, Paul speaking to the church in Philippi. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being, found, being born in the likeness of men and found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And so, church, what we see here in Philippians 2 is this incredible act of pursuit. Uh, Jesus comes down from heaven, he becomes a man, 
And then he, he redeems the world by going to the cross and uh, accomplishing what he did there on, with salvation. And so uh, the, the main connection that I want us to make today uh, is, is basically that the primary way that Jesus served, that Jesus pursued us, was by becoming a servant to us. So the primary way that Jesus pursued us was by serving us, uh, by adopting the mentality of a servant and then living a lifestyle dedicated to serving others. Jesus not only carries out the atonement and salvation kind of in a theological sense, uh, but he also just on the ground day to day has these really profound interactions with people in everyday scenarios, with everyday people in everyday circumstances uh, by simply living a lifestyle of servanthood. Uh, this concept of, of service as a means of pursuing people is something actually that my wife and I, Julie, have experienced quite a bit, uh, even just in the various places that we've lived with our neighbors, um, and especially when with neighbors who maybe aren't as friendly or maybe there's a wall up, maybe they're not, they're not really interested in getting to know you. Uh, man, we have found uh, just that if we are faithful in really simple ways to serve them or to show kindness, uh, inviting them over, having them over for me or whatever it might be, uh, it's incredible how the walls just come down quickly, uh, and they're open suddenly to talking and to building a relationship. Um, and really, honestly, at that point, they are ready to be pursued uh, when we have been faithful to serve them and to show them kindness. And so it is just, uh, for me, it is so profound to see how, how serving someone really tees up uh, your ability to pursue them with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today, uh, servanthood and how it is one of the most, I think, practical vehicles uh, for pursuing the one. So we're going to be in the New Testament. Again, we're going to be looking at a few different stories and interactions between Jesus, Paul, and others. Uh, and as we look at these various interactions, uh, we're going to be focusing on, on two primary categories. So first, we're going to look at, at three attitudes of a servant. And then after that, we're going to look at three actions of a servant. So three attitudes and then three actions. And so we're going to look at how these attitudes and these actions uh, honestly really complement one another, how they uh, reinforce one another in a lot of ways. And so my hope and my prayer is that as we look at some of these interactions, uh, we will get just some really good insights as to what it looks like to practically pursue people uh, with the gospel. So first, we're going to be looking at some of our attitudes. And I think uh, it makes sense to hit the attitudes first because... Uh, if we can adopt these attitudes, if we can uh, train ourselves to get into the mindset of a servant, uh, then I think the actions are just going to flow naturally. Um, if we are in a place where we're basically just saying, hey, I'm a servant, I'm here to serve, uh, how can I bless somebody today? And so um, we're going to start with the attitudes. And so for this, we're going to hit our first attitude uh, out of Matthew chapter 12. So you can turn there. We're going to have these scriptures on the screen as well. About Matthew chapter 12, and this is uh, an interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees. And so let me pick it up for us in Matthew chapter 12, verse 9. So he went on from there, and he entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, so he had a, a physical deformity. Notice that. And they, the Pharisees, asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, uh, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. 
And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how they might destroy him. And so the first attitude uh, that we're gonna focus on today is this. Uh, We see, number one, a servant sees the worth of the individual. A servant sees the worth of the individual. So Jesus makes this clear in verses 11 and 12, right? He says, if your sheep falls into a pit, you're gonna save it. And how much more value does a person have? So yes, of course it is okay to do good on the Sabbath, especially if you're helping and blessing somebody. Um, and I think what's so, what's so striking here in this interaction that Jesus has is how differently uh, the Pharisees and Jesus approach the situation based on how they view the individual, right? So verse 10, look at this. Uh, it says, a man was there with a withered hand, and they, the Pharisees, asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? So the text reveals to us their intent in questioning Jesus, right? It's not good. Their actions betray that the Pharisees, uh, they knew that this man needed healing. They knew that he needed help. They could see that. But instead of offering him help, uh, the Pharisees come in in order to, to puff themselves up to seem pious. And they actually come in and what they do is they exploit the man's weakness since they viewed him as worthless Uh, They view him basically as a means by which they can make their point, and they essentially abuse his dignity in order to make themselves appear right, which which is pretty bad. It's pretty despicable. And then Jesus comes in, and he does what? He does the exact opposite, because he values and he sees the worth of the individual. Even though on the outside the man was deformed, and he probably had nothing really of significance to offer society, Uh, But Jesus comes in and he serves this man. He heals him. And in doing so, he reminds us that we are all image bearers created after God's likeness, uh, equal. We all have inherent dignity and worth. And so notice this, right? The Pharisees, they view the man as worthless. And so they exploit him in an effort to serve themselves. But Jesus comes along understanding the man's inherent worth. And he heals him. He faithfully serves him and he honestly brings glory not even to himself, but to, uh, to God the Father. And so that's our first attitude. A servant sees the worth of the individual, and that's made evident by how they both treated this man. Our second attitude is this. Number two, a servant hopes in the future work that God can do. A servant hopes in the future work that God can do. And so for this, we're going to be in Hebrews 12. You can turn there. And we're going to look at Christ as our example. So Hebrews 12, verse 1, and it says this. And it's actually referencing uh, all the, the great men and women of the faith who were just talked about in verse 11, or chapter 11. So it says, Therefore, in light of all those great men and women of the faith, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, notice that line, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what's going on here? What's happening? So first, 
In verse 1, we see this exhortation to run uh, with endurance the race that is marked out. And this essentially means uh, basically just being faithful in whatever it is that God calls us to do. And then the writer pivots, right? And he reminds us by way of example, Jesus' example, of how Jesus was, was faithful. And so verse 2 says this. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, pause right there, what does that mean? What do we mean by that? So as Jesus was serving, and you can remember back to Philippians 2, right? He's in heaven. He empties himself. He comes down, takes on flesh, becomes a man, and he serves us by going to the cross. As Jesus was serving, he had a hopeful expectation that he was looking forward to of what God was going to do through him. And this was essentially the joy that was set before him. This is what he was looking to. And this was salvation for humanity. This was his own resurrection. This was God being glorified. This is kind of all that, all that good stuff that would come about. And so this is what Jesus was focused on and hopeful of as he went to the cross, as he served us. So Jesus had, again, he had this mindset of hopeful expectation of what God would do, and it compelled him to serve faithfully to endure the cross and to despise the shame, as it says, and verse one, and to, to run with endurance the race that was marked out for him. Now, we also see this very clearly with Paul. First um, Thessalonians chapter two. So here in this, in this text, we see a lot of verses of Paul recounting how he and Timothy and Silas served the Thessalonican church. And so specifically, uh, this is referring back to an instance in Acts 17. So you can go check that out. But Paul was with them in this uh, situation in Acts 17. And so this letter now to the Thessalonians is him reminding him of that occurrence of when he was with them. So verse 7 of chapter 2 says this. Paul speaking to them says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, I love that language, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, our very lives, because you had become very dear to us. For remember, brothers, our labor and our toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. While we proclaimed to you the gospel of God, you are witnesses in God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, <clears throat> we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Right, so here's Paul. Paul and the gang faithfully serving the Thessalonians amidst trials, difficulties. They're even stoned right before this. And so they're serving them very well. But where does this hope piece come in, right, into the equation in terms of how the, their hope that they had informed their behavior? We'll look down at verse 19. It makes it clear for us. Paul says, for what is our hope? or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming. Is it not you, Thessalonians? For you are our glory and our joy. So we see here that similar to Jesus back in Hebrews, the joy that was set before Paul, right, was a deep and abiding hope and expectation that God could minister to and could change these people, these Thessalonians, these pagan idol-worshiping people. He was hoping in that as he was serving them and teaching them the gospel amidst various trials. So he, he serves them faithfully. And what's so cool is that uh, God does end up transforming these people and honestly bearing lots of fruit 
from the Thessalonican church. They're one of the most fruitful churches that we see in the New Testament. Um, you know, Julie's, my wife Julie, her job, uh, she works for a nonprofit called Apartment Life, and essentially what they do is they put Christian couples into apartment complexes uh, for the sake of um, doing community events and just boosting kind of community morale they, in terms of serving their neighbors well and loving their neighbors. And it's a really great ministry. And because of this, these, these usually couples or roommates uh, get lots of opportunities to, to share their faith or to invite people to church. And uh, one really cool story I was encouraged by that happened a few months ago. Uh, so basically, one of the communities, a family from Iraq, moves in, and they have a few small kids. They don't really have much. And basically, this team just took it upon themselves uh, to serve this family so well. And so uh, they provided them basic home needs like plates and dishes and stuff because they didn't have any in the move, uh, so they didn't have to go buy some. Uh, they gave them rides. They carpooled. They watched their kids and babysat. Uh, they cooked the meals. They even went on a trip with them to New York City because I guess this family always wanted to go and see New York City. And so they just befriended them, you know, and they essentially made it their job to serve them because, I would argue, they had a hopeful expectation of, uh, of how God could, through their efforts, use them to minister to this family and potentially even change their lives. And sure enough, after months of serving and doing this faithfully and well, uh, the father came to faith in Christ just a couple months ago. And so this is just, man, one practical example of how uh, service as pursuit led to gospel transformation in this, specifically this man's life. And so I believe that when we are living in hopeful expectation as Jesus and as Paul were, um, of God doing something through us for his glory, when that saturates our thinking, this hope that we have, uh, we will be faithful to view ourselves as servants and to jump in and to serve quickly and with endurance wherever the Lord calls us uh, to jump in and to serve, whatever he puts in front of us. I think we'll do that well and faithfully. And so again, that's our second attitude. A servant hopes in the future work that God can do. They look expectantly towards that. And then our third attitude is this. Uh, we're gonna be in 1 Corinthians Chapter 4 for this, again, we'll have it on the screen. And so Paul essentially is writing to the Corinthian church, and he says this in verse 1. Paul says, this is how one should regard us, talking about himself and the apostles. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. And so our third uh, attitude is this. Number three, a servant sees themselves as a steward. A steward. So what's a steward? Um, a steward is essentially one who manages something that has been given to them, something that is not their own. So they're responsible for caring for or managing something that has been uh, given to them. And so every time uh, I hear the word steward, I tend to think, it's kind of geeky, I always think of the Lord of the Rings, love that trilogy, love that whole series, and I specifically think of, uh, of the steward of Gondor, right? So in the third movie, the city of Gondor is a city uh, that does not have a king. So a steward has been put in place uh, to manage and to care for the city. Uh, but the steward of Gondor actually ends up doing a pretty bad job. He's kind of a self, in the film anyways, he's a pretty self-serving, uh, gluttonous man. Um, he hasn't really prepared the city for the quickly approaching war uh, that is just outside their doorstep. Uh, he... he the city's in kind of a state of decay and bad morale. He honestly, eventually, his, his poor decisions 
uh, lead to him losing his own life and almost the life of his son uh, as well. And so pretty, pretty bleak picture there. But every time I read about uh, being a steward in the Bible, this is the imagery that pops up in my head. And it's, again, it's, it's negative, but it's actually quite helpful at the same time because I don't want to be like the steward of Gondor, right? I don't want to mismanage what the Lord has given me, my life, my opportunities, my giftings, and watch those things fall into decay because I'm just focused on serving myself all the time. 1 Peter 4.10 speaks to this. It says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And so Peter here focuses more explicitly on the gifts uh, that we've been given. This can mean anything. This can be your talents, uh, your abilities, what you're good at, and how we are to be, but Peter focuses on how we are to be using these gifts to bless others, to serve, and to really manifest God's grace in this specific way through serving. And so what we see in both of these texts, 1 Corinthians 4 and 1 Peter 4, uh, we see this important connection here between serving and stewarding, right? Serving and stewarding. So being a good steward of what you've been given from God means faithfully serving others. And to faithfully serve is to faithfully pursue the one uh, in light of this whole series that we've been talking about. And so again, uh, another example from Scripture, when I think of good stewardship, I, I really do think of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church. This is a very difficult church body. They weren't exactly the Thessalonians. Uh, there was all kinds of sin issues at work uh, that Paul was trying to deal with. There was false teaching. They were lobbying accusations against Paul. Uh, and, and despite all this, Paul continued to love and to serve these people well because he viewed himself as a steward of both his own gifts as well as the lives of the Corinthians. And viewing his life not as his own, but as something that God had given to him, that he was to steward well, he faithfully served these people. And guess what? Just like the Thessalonians, it did eventually bear fruit in, uh, in the Corinthian church. And so, again, that was our third attitude. Uh, number three, a servant sees themselves as a steward. And so that wraps up our three attitudes. And we're now going to look at our three actions. And these are kind of where we're going to really get into the nitty-gritty practical application portions. And again, I think that's because if we adopt these three attitudes, I think they necessarily flow into three actions. And so these, these not just these three actions, but many other actions too, um, as we seek to reflect Christ well and to serve. So the first action um, of a servant is this, that we see is number one, a servant labors in prayer. A servant labors in prayer. And so for this, we're going to turn to Colossians, another church in the New Testament uh, that Paul is writing to. And we're going to be in chapter 1, uh, halfway through verse 5. So 5b is where we are going to pick up. Paul writes to the Colossian church. He says, Of this you have heard before in the world of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it. And understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love and the Spirit. All right, so Epaphras, who's this guy? Uh, he was the guy who essentially planted 
the church in the city of Colossae. And Paul is commending him because he has been a faithful minister to the Colossians. So notice in verse 7, uh, real quick, how Paul links faithful ministry here to, to, to Epaphras viewing himself as a servant, right? So faithful ministry viewing themselves as a servant. Notice that connection. And then skip ahead a little bit more. Colossians chapter 4 now, at the end of the book, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Uh, some other translations of this verse, uh, struggling, also can be translated, lab- translated laboring or wrestling in prayer. And so Epaphras shows us that laboring or struggling in prayer is just an action that a good servant is going uh, to do. And specifically, he's praying that the Colossians would mature in their faith and that they would be assured of, of God's will and his purposes in their lives. And so, uh, Grace, I think the implications for this point are pretty clear. Uh, as we continue on in this series, we need to be going to the Lord regularly, consistently. We need to be laboring in prayer, wrestling in prayer even, for the one that the Lord has laid on our hearts to pursue. Uh, and also, I think it's worth saying that I don't, I don't think we're going to see uh, any fruit at, from our efforts of pursuing people until we go to the Lord in fervent prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to do a work and to minister. And so uh, my encouragement to you is this, is to from here on out to be daily uh, wrestling and laboring in prayer for who it is that you might be called to pursue, uh, for how it is that you might be called to pursue them, uh, praying that God would give you the opportunities to pursue them, and then also praying, lastly, that the Holy Spirit I would begin to work in their hearts. I think we might have that on the screen somewhere there, Ivan. Uh, just those four points of four specific things that you guys can be praying towards. And we'll leave those up for a second. Uh, and we're not gonna go here today, but Jesus also uh, really uh, communicates this point of how important prayer is, whether he's encouraging the disciples to pray in the garden or whether he's encouraging them to pray in regards to how they carry out their ministry. Um, fervent prayer will always precede any spiritually significant act that God does. And so I would encourage you as we pursue the one to begin doing this uh, every day. And so that was our first action. Number one, a servant labors in prayer. Our second action is this. A servant seizes every opportunity. A servant seizes every opportunity. So two quick examples from scripture of, of where we see this. Luke 7 Verse 12, Jesus is basically heading into a town with his disciples, and there's a big crowd coming out, and I'll pick it up for us in verse 12. It says, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. So it's a funeral. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd of the, from the town was with her. And when, uh, when the Lord saw her, Jesus had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, or the coffin, and the bearer stood so, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. So he performs this incredible miracle. And then it says, because of this, uh, the people went away, glorifying and praising God. So basically, Jesus is heading into town. Uh, he noticed this woman, this woman crying. And it's obviously funeral, so what does he do? He takes advantage 
of the situation, and he seizes the opportunity. And why does he do this? Uh, Because Jesus is a servant. And his head and his thinking is just in this place of, man, how can I be serving? How can I bless this woman? How can I bless these people? And obviously we can't raise the dead. Uh, I wouldn't suggest going to a funeral and trying to do that. It might not work out too well for you. Be a little awkward. But the principle that we can draw from this interaction is this. When the opportunity presented itself, Jesus used the power that was at his disposal to bless and to serve someone else and to comfort uh, this woman. He just jumped on the opportunity, right? He's just right there. And I actually think that that's a great little mantra that we can maybe uh, even use for ourselves. And that is this. So I would encourage you to write this down. When the opportunity presents itself, I'm going to use the power that I have at my disposal to bless and to serve someone else. So I'll say that again slow. When the opportunity presents itself, I'm going to use the power that I have at my disposal to bless and to serve someone else. And man, Grace Hill, that is something that we can all start doing this afternoon. Uh, We can seize the opportunities that the Lord presents to us and look for ways to bless people using the gifts uh, that we have at our disposal. And so what I love here is the end result of this, if you noticed, is that people go away glorifying God, praising God. And so again, notice the connection here. Jesus uh, seizes the opportunity to serve somebody, and the result is people praising and worshiping God. And so that is what this series is essentially all about. If we are faithful uh, to seize opportunities and to pursue people in faith, the Lord can use that to uh, bring people from death to life, to save people, to create worshipers for himself and to transform lives. And so uh, that's our second attitude. A servant seizes every opportunity. And then finally, our third action that we see in Scripture actually brings us full circle back uh, to our original text that we began in, in Philippians 2. So you can head back there. Uh, But this time, we're a little bit later in the chapter, and Paul is actually now uh, commending his co-laborer, a man named uh, Epaphroditus. So this is not Epaphras with the Colossians. This is a different person. This is Epaphroditus uh, with the Philippians. So just note that. But Paul is commending him because he has served, uh, like Epaphras, the Philippian church really well. So let's pick it up in Philippians chapter 2, verse 25. Paul says, I have thought it necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and he has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. And then listen to this, verse 29. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. And so our last, our third attitude, action, sorry, our third action is this. A servant takes risks for God. A servant takes risks for God. And so in light of what we see earlier in chapter two of Christ coming down from heaven and serving us, becoming a man, uh, Paul now points us to a human example of this, of what faithful service looks like. So Epaphroditus He wasn't anybody special per se. In fact, Paul makes it clear in verse 25 that he was just a messenger. But he was a guy who viewed himself 
first as a servant. And that view of himself uh, spilled into the way that he actually lived his life on a day-to-day basis. He was a Christian servant who took a risk by bringing this gift, it was likely a monetary gift, from the Philippians to Paul while he was in prison. And he did this uh, even though he was sick and it almost killed him. It was almost to the point of death. And then after that, Paul shows us, he took another big risk, potentially still being sick, we're not sure. He took another risk of bringing the letter now from Paul uh, back to the Philippian church. And what letter I mean is, the, is actually the book of Philippians. So uh, Epaphroditus delivers the book of Philippians, this letter, from Paul back to the Philippian church. And what's so cool is that because uh, Epaphroditus was willing to take the step of faith, to take this risk, potentially risking his health even more, Paul was encouraged while he was in prison. The Philippian church was built up. And now we, as the church today, get to enjoy the book of Philippians. How great is that? So this is the letter that was delivered. And all of this because Epaphroditus was a faithful servant. And so church, just just really notice uh, the fruit here that came about because one faithful servant was willing to take a risk for God. So what I would encourage us to do is to think through and to pray through how the Lord might be calling you to take a, a risk or a step of faith. Uh, to take a risk even in pursuing your one. Um, It might be taking a risk to serve somebody in your office. It might be taking a step of faith to serve somebody in your neighborhood. It might be taking a risk to serve somebody in your family or to connect with them. Maybe even to, to mend a broken relationship that you have in your life. But we take these steps uh, knowing that the Lord can use them, that he does use them, uh, to get the, the gospel out, to multiply joy in Jesus, and to see people be transformed by the love of Christ. And so that's number three. A servant takes risks for God. So I would encourage you strongly to think through what taking a risk uh, even this week might look like. And so that's our our three attitudes, our three actions. Just a quick recap. Uh, Our three attitudes were these. One, a servant sees the worth of the individual. So how is it that you can uh, get into this mindset of seeing every person as an image bearer reflecting God's glory and God in some specific way. A servant hopes in the future work that God can do, so how are you hoping in and really anticipating and expecting God to show up and to do something? Are you expecting that? Uh, A servant sees themselves as a steward, so how are you managing the gifts and the life and the opportunities that God has given you? And then our actions, a servant labors in prayer. How are you praying? Let's we, we want to make sure that we're praying daily and intentionally for the people that uh, God has laid on our hearts. A servant seizes every opportunity. So again, how can we see ourselves more as a servant so that we can be ready so that when an opportunity does present itself, we're just right there ready to go as Jesus was, uh, ready to bless somebody using whatever it is that we have at our disposal. And then lastly, a servant takes risks for God. How is it that you can potentially ste- step out uh, in faith and maybe take a risk uh, which might mean, honestly, you putting yourself in a vulnerable position. It might mean you step into a situation where, Lord, if you don't show up, I might look like an idiot here. But I think it's in those types of situations when we do that, that God shows himself most faithful because it's not about us, it's about him getting the glory after all. And so those are our three attitudes, our three actions. And so uh, from all these examples that we just looked at, I just want us to notice how, how the service-oriented nature of these attitudes and these actions led to fruit in the lives of the Thessalonians, the Colossians, the Corinthians, the Philippians, and then the people that Jesus interacted with. 
And again, we see this fruit because the people who were directly ministering to these churches viewed themselves first as servants. And so, Grace Hill, I think, uh, in light of all this, I think our big takeaway from today is this. Do you see yourself primarily as a servant? Is that how you view your life? And do you exist to, to serve others and to put their needs above your own? I think, again, so much of our pursuing the one will occur as we labor to serve the people that God has put in our hearts. And honestly, there's, there's great joy in serving, and we discover this more as we, as we do it more. I think we realize that this is something that is so fundamental to how we were designed to function, that it's one of the primary places where we, where we actually discover joy in life is through serving and helping others. And this is actually something that we see uh, in Scripture in the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The three members of the Godhead exist to serve and to glorify the other. We see this all over Scripture. And so, isn't it kind of cool how when we do the same thing, when we model and try and reflect that as God does that, this just allows for the flourishing of joy in our lives and well-being in our lives because we're doing exactly what we were created to do. And so again, do you exist primarily to be served or to serve others? I'm convinced that the most effective way of pursuing people for Christ is through serving them. And as we adopt a mindset of service and as we live this out with our actions, we will be far better posture uh, postured to pursue the one. So be thinking about this. Uh, let me pray for this, and then Matt and the band are going to come back up and lead us in worship. So, Father, we thank you that you just, man, from Scripture, you give us this incredible example from your own life, Jesus, from the life of Paul and Epaphras, Epaphroditus, and many others. God, we just see this incredible example of you um, serving well, and that always just teed up and gave you an opportunity to, uh, to bless and, so, and to share the gospel and to see people come to faith. And so we thank you for that, Father. Lord, we pray that, um, God, that you would now allow us to put on this mindset of a servant's heart. Lord, so often I struggle with this. I wake up and I think today is all about Nick's joy. It's all about uh, Nick getting what he wants and about my own agenda, what I need. And so I pray that we would see more and more uh, by your Spirit's power increasingly that true joy comes from uh, doing what we were ultimately made to do, which is serve and bless and love others and reflect you well um, to each other. And so, Lord, I pray for that. God, I pray that you would, uh, even as we consider practically pursuing the one, that you would continue to put the people on our hearts and minds who we might be feeling called to pursue, whether that's a neighbor, whether that's a coworker, that it, whether that is a family member, whether it's somebody on the street that we meet uh, kind of randomly. Father, when the opportunity presents itself, I pray that we would just act and that we would be, that you would just reveal to us who that person might be. And so we trust uh, that you will do that, Lord. We look expectantly and we hope in the work that you're going to do through our lives. And we love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Why don't you guys stand for us as we continue to sing together?